Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 as we're returning. A new section in this wonderful epistle as Paul has written it for us. Colossians 2 and verse 16. Paul is writing to the Colossian believers and affirming them or confirming them, uh, encouraging them to stand firm in the faith as they have received it from a man who planted the church, a guy named Epaphras or Epaphras, and his faithfulness and his concern for the church being subject to some false doctrine that was affecting them. False doctrine in the form of uh, philosophy or uh, a claim for you can know God better or you better know God through uh, a harsh treatment of the body, saying no to certain things, don't eat this, don't touch that, or having, hey, you know, Jesus is good, but what about those angels that help us? And wanting to pay attention to angels and, and these emanations that come from God and even some legalism, as we'll see it here in, in these verses, uh, thinking that somehow our standing before God has to be helped by our adherence to man-made commandments. Uh, God's commandments are good, and they're not burdensome to us, but man-made commandments, whoa, they get out of hand pretty quickly, and they're just ridiculous. They don't advance us any way toward uh, salvation, whether you know, being declared righteous or being made more righteous practically in our daily lives, you know, sanct- uh, justification and sanctification. So Paul is speaking very clearly here, uh, speaks it's nothing new in the sense we've already seen his treatment of this, we've already seen his warnings, but he, he comes at it from another way and, and addresses another aspect of the false doctrine that is affecting the church in Colossae. So in verse 16, I'll just read verses 16 to 19. In Colossians 2, Paul says, Therefore, no one is to judge you in food and drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, going into detail about visions he has seen being puffed up for nothing by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that's from God. Paul is very careful to say, therefore, based on what he's just taught us, the doctrine that he's spoken to us about our salvation, our sure salvation in Christ, that he himself is our righteousness. He is the one who gave himself for us. In him we have a canceled debt. We're no longer liable or culpable for our sin. Christ himself became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. It's not something that is uh, yet to happen in the future. Now, there is an aspect of salvation that's just yet to happen, but in terms of the reality of it, in terms of the certainty of it, it's a done deal. It is ours. It's been given to us in Christ. And so Paul says, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone cast aspersions on you or or, uh, inspire you to question your salvation in this regard. You haven't done enough about your salvation. Paul says, no, Christ did enough, and it's it's done. It's it's paid for. Christ is victor. Christ is, is Savior. This issue of false doctrine and questioning and doubting is not a new thing. It's one of the most famous and most used tools in Satan's arsenal for bringing people out of fellowship with God. It happened even back in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say, or has God really said, or do you really know this to be true, or how can you know, or God's keeping something from you. You can't really trust God. He's got other things in mind. Satan is very effective in that strategy. You'd think that somehow we would learn and realize God's word is true, and even Romans says, let God be found true, though every man be a liar. And we know Satan is a liar. He is a liar from the beginning. He is a murderer. He is against God's people. 
false teachers are in line or in league with Satan. And we think, well, that's kind of a harsh statement. Well, Paul said it so many different times. First uh, Timothy 4, he says, they pay attention to doctrines of demons. And we'll look more about that passage here in a bit. But this false doctrine, it's not from the Lord. It's not truth. Jesus himself said his high priestly prayer in John 17, uh, 17, I think, verse 17, I think it is. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. It is true. It is accurate. It is a, a viable or, or reliable uh, testament to what is real, what is reality. And we want to rest in that. When he decrees things, when he gives commands, when he gives precepts or, or uh, teaching on certain things, we can rest in that from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. And Jesus himself said, if I have spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe, how will you understand? How will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? If, if God's word is true from the beginning, then, well, God did create heaven and earth in six days, uh, six you know, astronomical days. And he is the one who made Adam and Eve. He made male and female in the beginning. He's the one who defined, he, he uh, made, first of all, but also he defined what marriage is. It's a man will love, will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. There is that reality. We can't question that and say, well, but what if these other two, two or three or ten people love each other? Who are we to say that they can't be married? Well, God's the one who said they can't be married. Marriage is between one man and one woman, and not one who says they're a man or a woman, but the ones whom God has made biologically. See, doubt and, and opposition and false doctrine comes in so many different shapes and fashions, but it, it leads us to just, in, in, in portions or in parts, question the truth, the reliability, the authority even of God's word. And Paul says here, no one is to judge you. Don't be intimidated by other people that sound. Maybe they have all these letters, you know, the PhD, uh, whatever, 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 after their names, and well, they need to be reckoned with. No, they really don't. If they don't appeal or testify to the scriptures, then they're off base. They're, they're not appealing or not uh, revealing God's, God's truth. One person I just I read was reading this yesterday. One person uh, said what education is. He gave a definite edu- definition of education, and he said it this way: education is thinking like Christ. And you think, whoa, I mean that's kind of a heady thing. But didn't we just read it in Colossians two? In Christ are all hidden all the w- treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So thinking like Christ is what we want to do. We want to give honor and glory to the things that that Jesus himself gives honor and glory to. Submitting to the Heavenly Father, laying down his life for his friends, pursuing righteousness, valuing God's word more than his daily bread, right? Remember in Matthew 4, uh, Satan tempted him, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to rest in the scriptures. We need to trust in God's word wholly. Paul wouldn't say this is an issue unless it was an issue back in the first century and now in the 21st century. People will judge us. They will question us. They will accuse us of all manner of of violence against what is um, tolerant or acceptable in this uh, enlightened age or post-enlightenment or whatever kind of age we're in. It's really an age of darkness because Romans 1 says, in, or in Ephesians uh, 4, also talks about being darkened in their minds. They're, they're, there's a great darkness that has fallen on us. And yet we have the light. We have the only light. 
It is Jesus Christ himself. We are the light of the world, and we testify to Christ. Christ entered into the world. He is that light that has come into the world, and the world did not comprehend it. They were not in tune with it. They didn't appreciate it at all, and what they do? They killed him. Now, it was all on the plan and purpose of God, and yet the opposition is real, and it is could we say it's growing? It's it's always growing. It's always it takes on a new fashion, a new front, and yet it's always against God's word, God's truth. Paul says here, "You Colossian, you beloved people, you Christians, you people who who have believed in Christ, stand firm in that. Don't let anyone take you captive by any kind of other doctrine or philosophy. Don't let anyone uh, cast aspersions upon you or or." intimidate you, kind of bully you into rejecting God's authoritative truth. Don't let anyone, as it says here in verse 18, I think it says, um, don't let anyone keep defrauding you of your prize. I mean, you've won. Why why, why can't you enjoy the, the fruit of your labor? And again, the, the labor is not so much as believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're saying, you, you don't deserve that. You don't earn that. You didn't earn that. That's not yours. You can't enjoy that, that prize or that fruit. No. You can enjoy everything that God has provided for you at this time. Don't let anyone bring you into condemnation for that. Do not abandon your faith. He says elsewhere, do not let your peace be upset. Back in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe, believe in God and believe also in me. Don't give in to pressure that would say you need to conform. Romans 12 uh, verses 1 and 2 talk about don't be conformed to this this world, don't be pressed. I, think, I forget what translation, maybe the message or something like that says, don't let the world press you into its mold, which is that idea. What's the world all like? Against God, which is why we need, you know, you ever like Latin phrases? For some reason, Latin just kind of sums up things. There's this phrase called contramundum. Contramundum means against the world because the world is contra. Deus, against God. And you have these opposition, or even in Galatians 5, the opposition between flesh and the spirit. The flesh uh, wages war against the spirit, and the spirit uh, wages war against the flesh. And we are in the spirit, and so we need to walk in that. We ought not to relent or or fall victim to criticism. People, uh, my father-in-law always talked about when you share the gospel and you're you're afraid of sharing the gospel because somebody might raise an eyebrow at you. I mean, that's about as much... Uh, persecution that we experience a lot of times. People say, maybe they're taken aback. Oh, how dare you? I mean, they don't kill you. Uh, you know, you share the gospel. Didn't you read in Acts 14? They stoned Paul. I mean, he was fine. He got up. Well, you read elsewhere in, in, in Paul's writings, he probably died. <laughs> Is that the time that he went to the third heaven? I don't know. I'm not sure when all that happened. And yet, there is that serious opposition. But when criticism comes and people say, oh, you believe the, the scriptures? Oh, that's been translated so many times. How can you even rely? How do we even know what God said? And oh, why is why is that book in the Bible? But this book is in the Bible. Or why is that book in the Bible? And so don't succumb to these criticisms. Don't succumb to this judgment. Have courage in the face of opposition. This is what Paul is saying. This, he's saying this to a church he'd never met personally. Maybe he'd been through Colossae because it's read on, was on a, a main path that he may have traveled through. And yet the church itself, he was not active in. He did not establish the, this church. But he says, I know what Satan is coming after. I know his schemes. We're not ignorant of his schemes. He is a liar. He's a deceiver. He dresses himself with robes of, you know, like an angel of, of God, a messenger of God, but don't believe him. Don't give him one inch in the life of the church. Don't let 
other people judge you. Now, the, the question is, well, how? I don't have any authority over other people. What they're going to do, I can say, hey, don't judge me. And yet, what are they going to do? It's, it's kind of like the, the statement, haters are going to hate or uh, false teachers are going to false teach. Uh, I don't have any authority over them, but I do have authority over my own spirit. That's why Paul says elsewhere, stand firm, have courage, make sure that you are standing fast in the scriptures. Make sure that you are uh, adhering to the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have any authority over other people, and yet I have authority over myself, and I should pay attention to what God has spoken to uh, to me and the, the promises I have. You realize that there is great uh, stakes, I guess, in, in terms of this battle. Second Corinthians 10 speaks about the battle that we have. Verse 3 speaks about the war that we face. Even though we walk according to the flesh, 2 Corinthians 10, 3, we do not war according to the flesh. We think, well, what's all this warfare business? Why do we have to be at battle? Well, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, not just individuals. I mean, when you go to battle and you have a you know, man-to-man or hand-to-hand combat, uh, that's one thing. But here we're talking about destruction of fortresses, these strongholds, this whole uh, barricaded and, and secure and, and uh, weaponized uh, defensive, op- offensive kind of situation. No, our, our warfare, or our weapons rather, are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Verse 5 says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive. Well, whose thoughts? Well, my own. I need to start with my own. I need to take every thought of my own captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. As the scripture says, we wage war not with with uh, guns and knives and, and cannon and all that kind of thing, but with truth. You remember, we're not studying it in this in Colossians, but in Ephesians chapter 6, the only offensive weapon there, called all these defensive, the shield of faith, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet, all these, but there's only one offensive weapon, and that is a, a uh, not a broadsword, but a, a short, shorter sword that is useful for almost surgical precision. And Paul says there, it is the word of God. We wage war with the word of God. We speak God's word. We don't need to be ashamed of God's word saying, well, somehow, um, you know, this is the 21st century after all. Maybe we ought to pay attention to all the science, all the philosophy that has gone on in this last uh, 20 centuries since the, since the uh, time of Christ. A lot of things have changed since then. Not really, not a whole lot. The wisest person in the world, we've read in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new. Under the sun, maybe a little bit more uh, or different presentation of it, but it's, it's really all the same. And the opposition that we have, the lust of the heart, the lust of the flesh, both of pride of life, it's against God. And the solution for it is always the same. Look to God. Turn away from your sin. Turn to God. Trust in him. Rest in his truth. It's said in many circles that doctrine divides. That when we give too much attention to theological truths and principles and so forth, that's just divisive. We need to move on from that. And no, don't. Don't give in to that idea that somehow uh, we need to be light on doctrine. We need to be more attractive to the world. The world hates God, hates God's truth. And the only solution for their hate is God's truth. The very thing they hate is the thing that they need to change them, to give them the light, to give them this uh, understanding of God's mercy, his grace that is received by faith. People who claim doctrine divides forget the idea that doctrine also unites, that it brings us to God. 
the truth of God's word is that path to God as we know what he has done in Christ. We need to rest in the sovereignty and goodness of God, that he is righteous, he is truthful. Do you remember the situation back in the Old Testament? This is when Assyria, the, the big, I mean, the big uh, power in the, in the ancient Near East, uh, came and, and conquered and really decimated Israel, the northern kingdom. Remember, the kingdoms had divided and Israel to the north had fallen to Assyria. Well, guess what? They weren't satisfied just with conquering Israel. They wanted to conquer Judah or Judea, as it was later named, but that southern uh, kingdom uh, always uh, ruled over by a son of David, a descendant of David, whereas the northern kingdom was not so much. But the king of Assyria came against Jerusalem, and he was saying, oh, you can't fight against me, and I'm so good and so powerful, and every other nation I've conquered, no god is able to withstand my offense or my power. And Hezekiah was the king at that time, and he was troubled because he'd known, he knew what happened to Assyria. He knew what, ha- or what happened to Israel. He knew even what would happen to other uh, uh border cities that they had. One of them was Lachish that that uh, was conquered and Azekah and some other places. So they were coming after Jerusalem and heard this, this taunting from not so much even the king of Assyria, but his messengers taunting Hezekiah that, oh, you're trusting in the Lord, your God. Who is able to deliver you from the king? The hand of the king, he's so powerful. All of the nations and their gods have fallen to us. So you'll fall just the same. Well, uh, Isaiah was the prophet at that time, and he said to Hezekiah, Do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Do not be afraid. Don't let anyone judge you. You're believing in Yahweh, this God, who wasn't, he wasn't able to deliver Israel, and all the other lands, he, those gods weren't able to deliver them from, from my hand, and who are you to believe in this guy? Isaiah said, Do not be afraid. Do not be undone. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let anyone judge you in terms of your doctrinal convictions before the Lord. You know what happened, of course. That next morning, 186,000 soldiers of the Assyrian army woke up dead. And they think, well, they didn't wake up dead. But the scripture, King James especially, makes it kind of sound that way. They were dead, and the king of Assyria went back to Assyria, and uh, he was killed thereafter too. So don't be afraid. God is much bigger than all these things. Do not let anyone judge you in that regard. Romans 8, you can write it down maybe. Romans eight thirty one to 39 speaks about this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is the one who has justified us, he's made us righteous in Christ, then who's, who is anyone to bring a charge against God's elect? It's not, it's not going to stand in court. You have, you have no standing. Now, there was some news in the Supreme Court about standing here recently, but there is no standing for these people who bring an accusation against God's elect. If you are in Christ, you're in Christ. Nobody can cast you aside. Nobody can snatch you, Jesus says in John 10, snatch you from my Father's hand. There is that reality. Don't let anyone judge you in these regards. And we should not judge other people. Romans 14 speaks about that. Uh, Different people have different appreciations of different days, as it says here uh, in, in Colossians 2.16, about, you know, some keep people keep a day, Sabbath days and other things, and some people don't. Every day is the same. Some people, are, are their consciences are offended if you eat meat sacrificed to idols, was an issue in, in 1 Corinthians, in, in Corinth, that, that people say, well, don't you know that meat was, was offered to idols? And 
what's an idol? It's nothing. But uh, hey, if it offends you, I'm not going to do it. There's that that issue where we stand firm on the scriptures, but when it comes to a, a weaker brother, as Romans 14 talks about, we're going to show kindness to them. We're going to relent for them. But if it's a false teacher saying, well, you don't do this, or you do do this, and that's that means it's, it's not good, or you need to do this to advance your sanctification, no, don't give in one bit. If it's an issue of how do I love my brother, that you give in, you you, you sacrifice your own um, uh, convictions before the Lord for the sake of that brother. If it's in the face of a false teacher, somebody who is questioning the reality of God's word, you don't give in one little bit. Do not let anyone judge you in this regard. This idea of judging is, is the idea of being guilty. Somehow we are culpable. We are still in our sins if, if we don't do these things. That somehow we have means of other people condemning us for our behavior, our standing, our, our devotion to Christ. They will blame us for different things. They'll find fault with us. They will say, no, you're guilty. You have, you have violated this commandment or this, this reality that we, uh, affirm or, or proclaim. And even they might appeal to God's word itself and say, well, you know, God's word says this, and so you better do that. He says here in, in verse 16, let no one judge you or no one is to judge you in these different categories. First category uh, spoken of food and drink. Actually, there's two separate categories, maybe. Food and drink, he says. Now, you realize food and drink and then the festivals, New Moons and Sabbath Day, that just reminds us of the Old Testament, reminds us of the Mosaic law, the the um, uh, the covenant that Moses mediated. And we realize that, well, God spoke that, so maybe we ought to pay attention to those things as well. Maybe we need to be uh, attentive to, what's that thing about uh, separating dairy from meat, and we we shouldn't have cheeseburgers, and uh, don't eat the pork, and and uh, you know all manner of other things. Make sure that you separate the clean from the unclean, the holy from the profane, and make sure that you do these things. Well, God had lots of commandments regarding food, kosher laws that you could read all about. There were less commandments about drink. Uh, if you read uh, in in the Old Testament, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you can read about various. Uh, commandments regarding drinking, and you realize there was a commandment against or for the priest, Aaron and, and his sons, that they should not take wine when they're on duty. They should not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you. This is Leviticus 10, verse 8. So there was that commandment for the priests. There was a commandment for Nazarites, not people from Nazareth. Those are different. Uh, a Nazarite, take, uh, a person who takes a vow to the Lord, had a restriction on what they could eat and drink, specifically what they could what they could drink. Number six talks about that: that a the Nazarite should abstain from wine and strong drink. He shall not drink vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that, of course, we realize is something that Samson did not do. Well, actually, he did, but uh, and we see it in. Uh, in uh, John the Baptist, that he would not, um, he will drink no wine or liquor. Luke 1 and verse 15 says. So there's that commandment regarding drinking, but uh, so many parts of Scripture talk about you will rejoice with the fruit of the vine, you will rejoice as when there new wine abounded, and all these different things. And even there was a commandment in Scripture when you come for a festival, uh, make sure you buy some good wine to enjoy and and make merry and uh, have that. Now, there are lots of other commandments about wine and liquor, strong drink that uh, don't uh, linger over that stuff. Don't uh, be uh, desiring it early in the morning. You know, Proverbs talks much about that. So there were various commandments about food and drink. 
And certainly, I mean, if there's anything that marked the Jewish liturgy or their aspect of worship, it was those festivals. And the festivals related, you know, they were calculated based on new moons because the Jewish calendar is based on the, a lunar month rather than a solar uh, month or a solar year and then divide that into 12 and so forth. But they based their months on when was the new moon, not the full moon, but when was the, the, the first little, little, little slit, slice of the moon that you could see after the, the lunar, um, lunar cycle. And so new moons were very important, and they celebrated, have a special feast, a spe- special sacrifice on that day. And, of course, you go from annual festivals, or five of them, uh, Passover and, and uh, First Fruits, Shavuot, Feast of Weeks, and then also in the fall, those were the spring feasts. In the fall, you have the uh, head of the year, the uh, Day of Trumpets, or the Sounding of Trumpets, and you'd have the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and the Festival of Booths, or Sukkot. And so all those were pilgrim feasts, have to go to Jerusalem and worship. And they were annually, every year, you'd have to do these things. Also, you have the new moon. So every month you'd have these things. And every week you'd have the Sabbath day. So you have the, a, a routine, a regular, regular uh, exercise of these resets to God. Make sure that every Passover you do this, and every new moon you do that, and every Saturday, every seventh day you do this. And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you in, in terms of how you eat, or how you drink, or how you do or do not honor any of these uh, these uh, um, festivals and new moons and, and these Sabbath days. Why? Those were commandments for Israel. Those were commandments for the sons and daughters of Jacob and the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were the, the rules, the regulations they had for God to maintain them as a distinct people that especially placing them in that land of Israel over there where all kind of nations are coming back and forth, Egypt from the south and Assyria and Babylon and even Hittites from the north and and the Arameans, and well, they were living in the land, but and then the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, all these different peoples would come and they'd hear, they'd see, what is it about this, this uh, people here in Israel? They worship a weird God. They can't even see him. They have a nice temple and stuff, Solomon built, but where is he? We don't see him. They don't have idols. Like we have idols, we have our, we carry our God with us, little whatever. Where is your God? And what you have to do this, and you have to circumcise your boys, and you have to uh, wear different. You can't sew these different garments together, and and all these. This is weird. This is amazing. Who is your God after all? How did you how did you come to know Him? There was that evangelistic opportunity that Israel had that they squandered so many times. And God said, if you if you honor me, if you obey me, I will bless you and you'll be a light to the Gentiles. But if you disobey me in these particular things, food and, and, and uh, drink and the, the festivals and new moons and Sabbath days, if you violate my commandments, I will curse you. I will cast you out of my land and you will uh, languish and perish in foreign nations. And yet, if you repent and return to the point is, the relationship that Israel as an ethnic nation had with God is different. It, it was to lead them to Christ as the one who is not just the shadow of what's to come, but the real substance of it. All the food and drink, all the separation, all the, the separating of, of clean and unclean is showing us we need to distinguish between clean and unclean. What is right before God and what is not right, what is not acceptable. Of course, Jesus himself declared that all foods are clean. It doesn't matter what comes into your body. That is not, that's not what defiles you. But what comes out of your body, especially out of your mouth, that is what defiles you. That is what makes you uh, wicked before him. 
So when you come to the issues of food and drink and, and these different religious days, they, they had their place in that Old Testament economy, that Old uh, Testament or, or covenant that, that uh, God mediated through Moses. They are not for us in this first century. We don't keep a Sabbath day even. Now that's, that's as striking because we saw it on the seventh day in, John, in Genesis 1, God rested on the seventh day. And the Deuteronomy, you know, the Ten Commandments say, well, God rested and sanctified that seventh day. Well, the seventh day was yesterday. Did y'all rest on, on this, on the Saturday? Did you know, if we were to carry out the, the full import of that commandment about honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, it says one day and seven you shall rest, but six days you shall work. Do y'all work six days a week? Are you faithful to, to maintain that devotion to work and, and constructive, productive labor? Or do you say, well, the point is, do we take God's word at face value and do we say that was for Israel? This commandment. He gives us this, this a preview of what we enjoy in Christ, the reality. Passover celebrates there's a, there's a lamb died for us, covered our sin. We're not subject to God's wrath. He uh, became sin. Christ himself is that one. He's the unleavened bread, the bread that comes down from heaven, who feeds us. It's not this unleavened bread that they, they had in the wilderness and, and, and commemorate. And it's even not the, the fruit. I mean, we, we celebrated this year, right? The Passover. It wasn't just the Passover. It was Messiah in the Passover. We said all these things are like big, signposts pointing at Jesus, and we gave our attention to Christ. We said he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one who sums up all the rules about food and drink and about these different religious days. We can look back on those things and appreciate what God has spoken to us in these things, but always we look to Christ. We look to him. We give him our our perspective and our devotion. He says here in verse 17 that he is the substance. He is that one who is not just another aspect of God's long uh, salvation history. He is the crux of it. And you know that word crux is a Latin word for cross. He is, I mean, that is the issue. He is the the substance of everything that from from that very first sacrifice. And I'm not even talking about Cain's sacrifice or Abel's sacrifice. I'm talking about, remember that animal that God slew to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve? That was a blood sacrifice. Somebody had to die to cover the iniquity, the nakedness, the shame of Adam and Eve. And any time thereafter, we see sin is only covered, even if it's temporary, even if it's a, a, a symbolic thing, uh, sin is covered by death, the death of a lamb in those different cases or uh, the death, death of Christ in our case. And all people, remember Jesus spoke about Abraham, uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He did see it, and he was glad. And that's Jesus talking. How in the world did Abraham live to see or, or uh, look forward to the coming of Christ? Because any time people in that Old Testament time period were, were trusting in God's provision, his righteousness, his gift of righteousness, it's by faith. It's by faith in what God is providing. When when. Abraham took Isaac, his son, on that mountain to sacrifice him as a, as a burnt offering to the Lord. Somehow Abraham decided, God has, has got to raise him up. He may die. He may be burnt to a crisp. And yet God somehow has got to raise him up. Why? Because God promised, through Isaac, all my descendants will be named. Well, he doesn't. he's not even married yet. How's God going to raise up descendants through a dead guy? Somehow he's got to raise him up. There was that first 
preview of the resurrection of Christ and how God provided a lamb in the place of Isaac. So there's a lot of different pre- uh, previews or or you know features of coming attractions. And all you read through all of Genesis through Malachi, and you think there's Christ. We see Christ in these things. Now we ought not look for him in places that he is not, and and uh, you know under every rock and whatever, but. We see the, the clear testimony that Christ is the substance. He, all this stuff is a shadow. All these things are um, uh, not even premonitions, but they are previews of what is coming, coming attractions. They are a shadow of what is to come. The reality, the substance, the body, even the, the word here is body, the body of this this issue, the, the reality of this is Christ himself or belongs to Christ. It's not even something that belongs to angels. It's not something that belongs to Moses, even though he was faithful in all his house uh, over which God put him. But it's Christ. Christ is the substance of these things. It belongs to him. Colossians is a letter that celebrates Christ from the very beginning to the very end, celebrates the the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the the victory of Christ, the salvation that we have in Christ. And he says here, the the main import of all those food laws and drink laws and religious days is all about Christ, what he is and who he is. He is the first fruits of those who believe. He is the one who covers our sin, Yom Kippur. He is the one in He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one that makes it possible. In the Feast of Booze, we celebrate the, the fellowship we have with God and the, and the um, dwelling with God. And it's not even so much we get to live with God, but that he will come down and live with us. Wow. I will make my dwelling among you. And that's because of what Christ has done. He is the one. He even promised and, and put these things together. How do we understand it? I don't know. I mean, this is heaven we're talking about. But he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. You're going to come and live with me, but I'm going to come and be with you. God and the Lamb are are with us. We look forward to that day. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you. Rest in the doctrine that is yours. Rest in the reality that all these all these things, these wonderful festivals, and they are wonderful. They're God. They, they were not made up by the Jewish people. They were not something just like marriage. Uh, hey, let's have, you know, how about just one guy and one woman, and they get together and they have kids, and that's marriage. People didn't decide that. That's not a cultural phenomenon. That is God's mandate. That is God's design and decree in terms of what marriage is. A Sabbath day, it was not a burden to his people. It had become a burden, especially in the time of Jesus. All these laws, man-made laws about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath day, it was not... A, a gentle or a kind way to treat people. It was a heavy-handed, do this, and you you went 1,001 steps, and therefore you are condemned. You've got to do this, that, and the other thing. It was, it was so many, Luke, Jesus describes it this way, that you put so many burdens on the backs of people, and you don't even lift a finger to help people. All these rabbinical requirements and restrictions. No, that's not what God intended. A Sabbath was given for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is God's gift. All these different things, the new moon, the Sabbath, food laws. I mean, there's a reason you shouldn't eat pork um, for in the Old Testament time and even for us with different requirements. But even if, even if God were to require baptism, believer's baptism, I think, what does that even do? Well, I, I don't think I agree with that. Why should... Why should I need to? Be, and why should I need to be immersed? Can I just be sprinkled, or, or you know, can I just drink some water? Isn't that enough? And baptism by immersion for believers is a testimony to the reality of what God has done in us through Christ. 
we have been buried with Christ in baptism and, and, and died and then raised up to walk in newness of life. So baptism even is a shadow of what reality we have in Christ. Always our attention is toward Christ. Always we give devotion and worship to him. One other aspect about shadow things, it's a preview of what's coming. You know, you see shadows uh, and you say, what's behind that shadow? What's causing, casting that shadow? But another thing about shadows is that they are, by definition, temporary. They are, by definition, transitory. They are fleeting. There are many times in Scripture where uh, life is compared to a shadow. Uh, the days of our our days on the earth are like a shadow, First uh, Chronicles twenty nine fifteen says, or in Psalm one hundred forty four, uh, the psalm uh, the psalmist says, "Man is like a mere breath; his days are like a passing shadow." So there's that that point of which it was intended to be temporary. This mosaic legislation, even specifically, it wasn't intended to carry on forever. Even though you read, uh, uh, this is a perpetual mandate, or uh, forever, uh, this is going to happen. It's interesting, I won't develop this too much, but there is this phrase in Hebrew that says, uh, uh, whenever we read about forever or perpetual, it says, until the age or until that time. Adolam is, is the phrase, and it says, uh, we, we, we look forward to that coming age. Well, guess what? That coming age is here. Why should we continue to walk in the shadows that were, were there until... That age came. We are in that age of Christ, that messianic age, that kingdom of God has come upon us, and so we don't need to be subject to those shadows anymore. We are in Christ. It says these things are just a shadow of what is to come. The question is, are these yet to come from our 21st century perspective? There's something we still look forward to? Well, yes, in a sense, and yet, in other sense, no, they have come. Christ himself inaugurated these things. They are ours in Christ. And so do you realize as much as, as uh, our Jewish uh, friends adhere to the Mosaic law and the covenants and so forth, actually more so the rabbis' interpretations of these things, there is no temple for them to offer sacrifices on the new moons. There is no uh, temple where they can offer burnt sacrifices or the uh, sin offerings, or even the drink offerings. And there was a drink offering that also was, was prescribed for the people. There is no place for them to do it. Hmm. Why? Because it was destroyed in 70, 80, 70, because they rejected Christ as Messiah, Jesus as the, the Messiah, as Christ. And the judgment has fell upon them. Now, it's the day of Gentiles. For to believe. And, and yet, when the last Gentile believes, when the fullness of Gentiles has come in, Romans 11 says, then all Israel will be saved. That's the day we look forward to. My point is, th these, these shadows have come or, or were ours until that fullness comes. It's something we yet look forward to. We're not entirely saved. We're still being sanctified. There's yet to be glory. We're still in these bodies that are wasting away. We, we're looking, yearning for that resurrection body. Romans 8 says the whole earth groans for the redemption. You know, yearns with anticipation for the redemption of God's children, his sons. That is something we look forward to. But in terms of the reality of it, it is sure. It's not questioning. We're not somehow wondering, is it going to happen or is it not going to happen? No, it's done. Christ is, he, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and we're in him. Therefore, what all these shadows we're pointing to is ours. It's here. 
Give your attention to Christ. Stand firm in him. People may come against you. They say all manner of things against you because, oh, you believe in Jesus. Or, well, if you believe in Jesus, then shouldn't you do this and the other thing? And, you know, followers of Jesus are nice. You're not being nice. Uh, Jesus let people do what they want to do. Well, in a sense, Jesus did do that, right? He said, let the, let the wheat and the tares grow up together. We'll, we'll separate them out in the time coming. But in the meanwhile, you be faithful to me. You stand firm in me. Make sure that your devotion is not somehow uh, hoodwinked or, or taken captive in this direction. Stand firm in God's truth. I won't go through it now, but when it talks about the substance belongs to Christ, do you realize if you read through, and, you know, Colossians is, is four chapters, pretty short read, maybe 15, 20 minutes, you can read through it. If you were to look, read through it maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, read through it and just notice each of those statements that Paul makes to the Colossians about Christ. Who is this? Who is this Christ? What has he done? Who's he like? Um, what's my relationship to him? You read through all of Colossians, you say, whoa, he is the real deal. He is the one that we give attention to. We shouldn't be troubled. We shouldn't be condemned or intimidated by those who say, well, you need to do this. You need to, to worship this, or you need to obey these legalistic rules, or you need to worship the angels, or you need to not touch that, and, and all these ascetic, you know, restrictive rules. Forget about that. Look to Christ. Run to him. Find your wisdom in him. Find your standing before God in Christ. The substance belongs to him. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the truth of your word that we have this sure salvation in Christ. It's not something that is, is yet, you know, yet to be determined. It is something we, we stake our eternity on, trusting that Jesus died in my place. And if I turn from my sin and trust in Christ, have faith in what he has done, then all my sins can be forgiven. Pray that each soul here present would be trusting wholly in Jesus and standing firm in him. We live in a world that is just so animated against you. It is against you, and it is uh, seems like it's overwhelming, and yet no. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is a vanquished foe. Uh, you have triumphed over them in Christ, and yet we somehow get fearful, we get embarrassed, we get ashamed of the truth of your word, ashamed to be Christians, ashamed even to say, um, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I know I'm going to be with Jesus. I know my sins are forgiven, but you don't do this, you don't do that. Well, I'm trusting what Jesus has done. I'm resting in what he has accomplished for me. We pray that we would stand firm in this wonderful grace, the wonderful grace of Jesus. We pray that we would manifest the pleasant aroma of uh, your sacrifice to a world that is lost and dying, and you're saving. You are changing lives individually, not by nations anymore, but individually people come to trust in you, and you change things. You, you change perspective. You give hope where there seemed to be no hope. You are the one who gives comfort and mercy. You are the one who gives a reason for dying. If we die in Christ, we are most blessed. Uh, not that we die, uh, you know, killing, becoming a martyr for Christ, but uh, killing other people. But we are one who is willing to bear the scorn, even as Paul said, I uh, fill up in my flesh that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we pray that we'd be willing to do that as well. But how much more, in a lesser sense, that we would stand firm in your word and teach others also. Please help us. We know that we are prone to... Uh, uh, fault and failure and tripping and and um, just not standing firm in your word. Please help us. We want to be your witnesses. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.